Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 30. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. Anybody know the hymn, I Surrender All? I love that hymn. Sing it with me if you know it. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. That's such a good one. Right? (laughs) That's what this passage of Scripture is about. And we're jumping right into it today. There's no preamble here. This passage of scripture is all about giving everything to Jesus. So we'll take the mystery right off the table. There are so many ways to interpret this and so many ways that it has been. And oftentimes we take the hard words of Jesus and we try and dance around them. We try to work around them and skirt around the hard words Jesus says and interpret them in ways that don't command or demand of us so much. But the fact is when Jesus comes and he talks, when Jesus teaches us, when he calls us to obedience, he makes very hard demands of us. It's, it's just a fact. If we deny that Jesus makes any difficult demands of our lives, then we have not understood Jesus. We cannot know the Gospels. We cannot know the words of Jesus and try and skirt around the hard things he says and the demands he makes of us to make it easier on ourselves. And so here we're in Luke chapter 18. Now here's what's been going on. A couple weeks ago I was preaching in Luke chapter 9, I think we were in. And I said this was kind of the hinge pin of Luke. That at that point, Jesus had been traveling around and doing a lot of miracles. We saw a lot of miracles early in the Gospel of Luke. Or we would if you guys had read the Gospel of Luke. So I challenge you, encourage you, go read the Gospel of Luke this week. You'll see in those first eight chapters or so... Lots of miracles. Jesus is doing a lot of things. He's following the gospel of Mark in the same vein. Uh, Jesus is traveling around. He's doing a lot of things. He's establishing his identity as the Messiah, as the king who has come for God's people. And then in that chapter we were talking about, in chapter 9 I think it was, um, 
Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And when he resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem, Jesus knows exactly what that's going to mean. He is going to his death. He's traveling now toward Jerusalem. (laughs) Only the problem is, from that point until the Passover when Jesus is arrested in Luke, he's wandering all over the place. Luke records him in all kinds of different places. It's not a direct path that he takes toward Jerusalem. He's traveling through Samaria, and he's traveling down to Jericho, and then he's back up in Galilee, and then he's down toward Jericho again, and he's just all over the place. And what the writer Luke, the Apostle Luke, is trying to tell us now is he's trying to fit in all the things Jesus was teaching before his crucifixion. He's updating us on all the things we need to know. He's established Jesus' identity through his works and his miracles, and now he's establishing Jesus' teaching in this kind of wandering period of Jesus' life as he's heading toward the crucifixion in Jerusalem. And so what you'll find is that there's not a lot of like narrative continuity. That may be a big phrase for some people. There's not a lot of narrative continuity in these chapters. It's just kind of a lot of episodes in Jesus' life. Suddenly he's here and he's saying these things to these people. And then he's over here and he's saying these things to these people. And then he's over here and he's saying these things to these people. So there's, there's not much of a story behind this episode. We know that Jesus has been traveling. He's down near the city of Jericho at this point. Jericho is just about due east of Jerusalem. It's on the Jordan River, and you cross over the Jordan, or if you're coming from from outside of Judea, or if you're coming down from Samaria, you come down from the north to Jericho, and then from Jericho, you make your way up to Jerusalem. Jericho sits down in a valley. Jerusalem is up out of the valley, and you got to travel up toward Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus is headed. That's, we're now toward the end of his life, the end of his ministry. So he's around the area of Jericho. And as he's there, he's doing some teaching. And Jesus is, is teaching these really hard things. He's making these demands of people. A lot of Luke is about the sacrifice that it takes to follow Jesus. Luke really hits hard on this. And it's for a couple of reasons. You see, the Gospel of Luke is written for both a Jewish and a Gentile audience, that is a non-Jewish audience. In the New Testament, there are two groups of people, right? There are Jews and Gentiles. And then if you're really wild, you're a barbarian, but we don't even talk about them very much, right? There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And Luke is written for both, where Matthew is largely written for a Jewish audience, Mark is written for largely a Jewish audience, John is just a whole other thing in the way that he talks about Jesus, Luke is written as a biographical account for anybody to be able to access. And one of the things that Luke talks about often, one of the things that Jesus teaches often that Luke records is this cost of following Jesus. It is a theme through the Gospel of Luke. And every single time, the cost for following Jesus is everything. Nothing is to be withheld from King Jesus. Nothing at all. Not our wealth, not our ambition, not our own desire to run our own lives. Everything is to be put at the feet of Jesus. And this is the hard teaching of Jesus. And this is the teaching of Jesus that if he is not God, if Jesus is not God in the flesh, makes him totally morally reprehensible. Let me tell you, there is no good Jesus apart from his divinity. There is no good Jesus apart from him being God. If he is not 
God, do not admire him. Don't give us any of the nonsense about Jesus being a good teacher and a kind guy and someone we should choose to emulate if he is not God. Because the things that Jesus said made him a crazy person or a liar if he isn't the God of the universe come in the flesh. So let's not play around. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing an argument that's been made for hundreds and hundreds of years, most famously by C.S. Lewis, the Lord, liar, and lunatic thing. But it's been that way for hundreds of years because it's the truth. And so if Jesus makes these demands of us to give him absolutely everything and he isn't God, then he doesn't even deserve our admiration. But because he is the good God, wrapped in flesh, come to us to reveal the full character of God, then he is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. If Jesus truly is who he claimed to be, and there's no way around who he claimed to be, then he deserves everything of us. And that's exactly the demand that he makes throughout the Gospel of Luke. People will come and say, I want to be your disciple. And Jesus will say, are you sure? Because I don't have a place to lay my head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And so just laying that foundation now, we come to this episode here in Luke chapter 18 where we're kind of bouncing between different episodes in the life of Jesus. And this young ruler comes to Jesus. Now it's, it's interesting that he's young because rulers of the synagogue and religious leaders typically weren't young. So he's probably someone important in the community. We don't actually know anything about this guy. The only thing we know is the word that's applied to him, which is a ruler. He has authority over someone and over something. And whatever he has authority over has made him very rich. He's a very wealthy, young, important person in Jericho. That's all we really know. And he comes and he tries to flatter Jesus, which is just funny because you can't do that. You can't flatter God. In fact, you can't flatter a secure person. A secure person doesn't need your flattery, doesn't need your flowery words. They know who they are. And they don't need you to flatter them or butter them up. And also, he's good. A good person doesn't need your flattery. A good person, a person of integrity, a person who knows who they are, you can't butter them up. They will act in a way that is consistent with their character and with goodness. Flattery just doesn't work on a secure, righteous person. And Jesus is the most secure, righteous person who has ever lived. So there's no flattering him. But this young guy thinks he's going to do it. This young buck thinks he's going to flatter Jesus. Good teacher, he says. Now that's a no-no. Rabbis consistently, rabbis in this time and place, consistently affirmed that there was only one good person, and that was God alone. You and I are good only to the extent that we are related to the good God. Only to the extent that we are identified by the good God, the only good being that exists. Rabbis of this time recognized that. So any faithful Jewish person would know, like, you don't call a rabbi good because they're going to deflect you 
to God. They're going to point you back to God. And that's exactly what Jesus, the good rabbi, does. This young guy says, good teacher, good rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' first response is, why do you call me good? Now, there are a couple of, of things we could take from that. One is Jesus is saying, I'm not good, only God is. But that's not true. I think what Jesus is doing here when he turns his back on the guy is saying, do you really mean that? Or are you just flattering me? Do you really mean I'm good? Or are you just trying to butter me up? Because if, you, if you're calling me good, recognize what you're saying. If you're calling me good, recognize what that means. Jesus catches the guy in his flattery. He catches him and is buttering Jesus up. And he wants him to understand that only God is good. Now let's reckon with that for a minute. This is a really important thing that I think much of our church life has lost. Only God is good. Only God is wholly good. Only God is perfectly good. Only God is righteous. You and I, we're mixed bags. Well, we got some goodness in us. We were made that way. We were made to be good. We were made to reflect God in every way. And yet anybody who's honest with themselves knows I am not wholly good. I am not good in every way. There are parts of me that you don't want to know. There are parts of me that you don't want to experience. There are ways that I behave and act in the world that you would lose respect for me if you saw me publicly acting those ways. There are thoughts that go through my mind that if I acted on them, you would call me evil. If we're honest with ourselves, not one of us is wholly good. We were made to be good. But we are sinners. We fall short of God's goodness all too often and in so many ways. And I am not exempt. I am not holy, holy. I am not wholly good. We are sinners before a good God. And only God is good. I am good to the extent that I reflect God. I am good to the extent that I reflect God's goodness, that my character is conformed to that of Jesus. I am good to the extent that I have been made like Jesus, to the extent that I actually follow him in my actions and in my thoughts and in my being and in my character. That's what makes me good. That's how it's been from the very beginning when God created humanity in his own image and said, they are good called them good. It has never been otherwise. Humanity has only ever been good when we actually reflect our good God and our good God's purposes and character. And so recognize what Jesus is saying to this young man, to us. Only God is good. So then we move on. God alone is good. And then he asks the young man, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't, do, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the young man says, I've kept all these from my youth. I'm a right upstanding young man. Right? I'm good. Okay, that's great. He must be feeling really good about himself right now, right? 
Now, Jesus only listed a few of the commandments. The Ten Commandments you can kind of break into two sections. One is how we relate to God, and the other is how we relate to one another. And if one is out of order, the other will be out of order. But the young man doesn't understand that. Most people throughout history have not understood this well. That if you get one half of the Ten Commandments wrong, either one, you get one half of the Ten Commandments wrong, the other is out of order too. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You break any of the others and you've broken the first one. Because something has become greater than God in your life. You covet someone else's things, those things become greater than God in your life. If one set of the Ten Commandments is out of order, then the rest of them are. And so Jesus only focuses on the ones that relate to you and me, to, to the horizontal relationships that we have. And the young man's like, yeah, well, this is good. I've kept all of those. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never borne false witness. This is more than just run-of-the-mill lying or white lies. I've honored my father and mother. Now, I bet most of us in this room couldn't say yes to all those. Adultery and murder, okay, most of us are probably good with that, in a good space with that. Maybe not, and it's okay. Most of us have not borne false witness, that is, made public testimony knowing that it was false, that would harm someone else. I would guess many of us have not done that. Honor your father and mother, well, <laughs> we don't live in a culture where that one is huge, where it's a big deal. And yet, a lot of us could read this list and go, yeah, I'm good. I've done all those things. And we would feel good with this young man. All right, I've done everything to inherit eternal life. I have done it. My checklist is complete. This is great. Thank you, Jesus. Now I'll be on my way. And enjoy my riches. And so this young man is feeling really good. This is probably why he gets so sad in just a second. And then Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Oh, oh. See all, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus says, yeah, you've kept those commands. Now, what Jesus is implying here is he did not say the command not to covet. And when Jesus listed the, ten, the, the number of the commandments there, the one command he didn't say that is horizontally related, you and me related, is don't covet. And then Jesus turns to him and says, yeah, but your stuff owns you. You've kept those others, but your stuff owns you, man. And as long as your stuff owns you, you can't follow me, Jesus says. As long as you're owned by anything else, you can have no part of my family. Now, that's a hard word. I just said a minute ago, like, the demands of Jesus, they're not simple. They're not easy. He didn't just come preaching love and tolerance. Jesus came asking his followers to surrender all to him. And here, Jesus is saying to this young man, you've kept those commandments, good on you, but you're owned by your things. And you need to go sell it all. Give it to the poor. And then you'll be ready. Now, it would be easy to look at this as a judgment on Jesus' part. It would be really easy to look at this and say, Jesus is just judging this guy. He's being really harsh to him. Maybe the guy would change if Jesus would just let him follow him. 
But I think this is really a mercy on Jesus' part. It's a mercy toward this young man to say, young man, if you don't get yourself out from under the ownership of your stuff, if you don't release your life from being ruled and run by your things, following me will destroy you. Your heart can't be divided. And if you try to follow me while you're owned by your things, if you try to follow me while anything else has an ultimate claim on your life, you will be divided and it will tear you apart inside. And I can't have that. It's not good for me and my followers and it certainly isn't any good for you. I think this call of Jesus to this young man is a great mercy. Jesus does us no favors if he says, sure, come on, follow me. By the way, you can keep all your idols. Come on, follow me. By the way, worship whatever other God you want. Worship whatever other thing you want. Let whatever else their thing have control over your life and then follow me. It's, it's, it's all good. Jesus knows that that is a recipe for our own destruction. Jesus knows that's a recipe for tearing our own hearts, for tearing our own lives apart. He says, get rid of your idols. Get rid of the things that you worship that are not me, that are not God. Be owned by nothing else. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not condemning wealth. He's condemning anything that would have ownership over you or me that is not our Father in heaven. We got to wrestle with the hard words of Jesus and recognize what has a claim of ownership over our lives. What relationships, what dreams, what things are holding ownership over us that are preventing us from fully laying everything down at Jesus' feet and saying, yes, my king, I am with you. I'm on this mission with you. I'm for you because I know you're for me. We need to do the hard work of examining our hearts and asking, what is claiming ownership over me? What am I still holding on to? What am I worshiping that isn't God, that isn't Jesus? What am I following? Because all those other gods, all those other idols, all the other things that would claim ownership over us, they didn't come to serve us. They came to be served by us. Your wealth is not here for you. It will dominate you and rule your life. Those codependent relationships, they are not here to serve you. They will drain from you and take from you and take from you. Those very selfish dreams that would tear you away from your community, they're not here to serve you. They're here to be served by you. And anything we give ourselves to, to serve, that is not our good God in heaven will only tear us apart. Only God 
came to serve you. Only Jesus came to die for you. Your stuff would never die for you. Your career would never die for you. Your company, your heritage, your family dynamics, your race, your history, none of those things ever died for you. And anything that we give ourselves to that is not our self-sacrificial, self-giving God is not worthy of our worship or our sacrifice. Any other agenda, any other purpose. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what Jesus is calling this young man to. Your wealth owns you. And you can't follow me as long as your wealth owns you. Jesus has to have the ultimate claim. And then we go on. So, so this guy hears this. He was on a high because he was so excited because he had kept those commands. He was worthy of eternal life. And then Jesus says this, and he leaves sad. He leaves brokenhearted because he had great wealth. Because he had so much to lose. And this makes his disciples really confused. Because they still have it in their head that if you're wealthy, it means God has blessed you with it. If you're wealthy, it means God is on your side. And so they're really confused. And they come to Jesus. And have you ever, you ever wondered, if you've read this before, you ever wondered why they ask this question? Lord, then who can be saved? Like, wait, wait what? I didn't get that from this conversation. Like, that would not be my response to Jesus. Lord, then who can be saved? Because the wealthy guy didn't want to follow you? That's a confusing response. And Jesus answers, and he says, With man this is impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. With man, what is impossible with man is possible with God. We can't save ourselves, Jesus is saying. You see, the, the disciples were operating with this idea that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. That wealth was a measure of God's blessing. Anybody heard preachers say that? Anybody ever heard a Christian preacher say that? If you ever step into a church, if this is not your home church and you're visiting churches, or this is your home church and you're ever on vacation going to a church, the moment that, that is hinted at, you walk out. I'm not even joking. Like, as your pastor, I'm commanding. No, I'm not commanding you. I can't do that. Right? You're ever at a church and you hear a preacher say that wealth is a sign of God's blessing, you leave. Jesus himself contradicted that right here. That is heresy. But his disciples, they're still in that mindset. That wealth is a sign of God's blessing. And the wealthier you are, the, the more it appears that God has blessed you, that God is on your side. And Jesus is just overturning that whole idea. Wait a minute, guys, hold up. It wasn't that poor people weren't blessed or loved by God. It's that this was just a sign that God particularly favored you. 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 guys, guys, get, no, wait a minute, hold up. That, that's totally not the point. You've missed it, guys. Just as so often happens, you've missed it, right? And so Jesus is making it clear. It's not the guy's wealth. In fact, with, with people, it's impossible for you to be saved. And I think that's, this is the perfect opportunity. This is the perfect place for Jesus to walk through that door and finally clarify with these guys, wait a minute, you've been walking with me, you've been living with me, you've been listening to me. Now I need to make it abundantly clear to you guys that the mission that I'm on is impossible apart from the power of God. I'm not expecting people to change their own hearts. No one's going to bribe their way into my kingdom, Jesus is saying. Not with their good works and not with their money. This mission Jesus is on is impossible apart from the work and power of God. And for you and me in here today, we need to know that. We need to hear that. Our salvation is impossible apart from the work of God. Apart from the work and power of God. Our piety, our good works can't get us in. Our money can't buy us in. There's no way that we can bribe God with our good deeds or with our wealth. It's impossible. But with God, what was formerly impossible is now likely, is now probable, is now true. What we could not earn for ourselves, what we could not gain for ourselves, what we could not grow for ourselves, what we couldn't build for ourselves, God has given us through Jesus Christ. And the impossible has become possible. And Jesus goes on to tell them, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And by the way, there's no one who gives up everything for me who won't gain it all back. And you're like, wait a minute, hold up, because I know the story of these guys. And I know they didn't get it all back. I know the story of these followers of Jesus. And I happen to know that they stayed pretty poor and Well, 11 of them died as martyrs, and John didn't exactly have the best life after all this. Um, So so what do we do with this promise of Jesus? I mean, that's a legitimate question. We've established that wealth is not a sign of God's blessing. But at the same time, Jesus is making a pretty hard and fast promise right here. There's no one who gives up everything for me who won't gain it all back now and eternal life to come. Now wait a minute, Jesus, because that's, that's not my experience. That's not the experience of martyrs throughout history. That's not the experience of your first followers. That's not the experience of people living in persecuted places. What on earth do you mean that if we give it all up for you, we'll gain it all back? Just like Job. You know the story of Job, right? Job was a righteous man. God allowed Satan to come and steal away Job's things. And then at the end of the book of Job, God grants back double all he had and the same number of children. And Jesus is saying, like Job, any of you who willingly give up for me will receive it all back. So what's he mean here? We've got to turn to Acts chapter 2 for this. 
In Acts chapter 2, we get the earliest picture of the very first Christians and what they do. They're living in Jerusalem. There are thousands of them now. And they're gathering regularly in the temple. And they're gathering in homes throughout the week. They're eating meals together. They're sharing their possessions. And one of the things that we read is that they put all their stuff together for the sake of the community. And that there was no needy person among them. Now, this is a fulfillment of the vision of the kingdom of God in Deuteronomy and Isaiah when we're told that everyone will be provided for. And what we're being shown in Acts chapter 2 is that the church is the fulfillment of all of God's dreams for humanity. That this church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of all God's promises for humanity. And one of the things that we learn from that early on is that within the church, within the body of Christ, within this family of God, what we have belongs to one another. That as brothers and sisters bounded together by the blood of Jesus and by the common bond of adoption into God's family means that we have a claim on each other. I have a claim on you as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandparents and cousins. And you have a claim on me. Now it doesn't mean I get to show up at your house and demand whatever I need. The transmission of my truck needs fixed right now. I'm not going to show up on your door and look for a check, okay? I promise. It's not that kind of claim. It's not that we make these demands. But it means that within God's family, as we're vulnerable with one another and we're honest about where we are and what God has given us, we share our excess and we share our need. And so what I think Jesus means is that you, that you will receive much more in this life is that we're going to receive each other. We give up what we have to make sure that our brothers and sisters are cared for within this family. It means we have a claim on one another that we can't deny. Whether we like each other or not, we're in this family together. And so God has called us to sacrificially share with one another so that we can claim this family bond together and we can provide for one another as we have need. I think that's what Jesus means. When we give it up, when we give up the things that own us, when we lay down our treasures, when we say, I won't be controlled by my stuff or my career or my ambition or the narrative that society is giving me that I'm telling me I have to live into, when I hand those things over to King Jesus, I gain him first. And I gain his family as my own. We have a claim on each other that doesn't give us the right to show up and demand from one another. We have a claim on each other that calls for our generosity toward God's family. That calls for our caring deeply for one another and sharing within this family because we recognize that every single one of us was a pauper before our good God. Every single one of us was in spiritual poverty. Every single one of us was spiritually dead apart from the enlivening work of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. That we are truly all in the same position before our good and holy God apart from Jesus Christ. Regardless of the wealth that we've had or the poverty that we come from, regardless of the circumstance of our life before coming to Jesus or the circumstance of our life as we're following Jesus, regardless of who we are or who we've been or what our story is, we all stand equally before our God adopted into the same family on the same footing 
And that truth, the truth of the good news of Jesus, will release us to be truly generous with one another. Because we trust God with our resources. Not because I trust you. Not even necessarily because we trust one another. But because we trust Jesus. And I trust that you've trusted Jesus. And we are brothers and sisters together. We gain one another when we gain Jesus. And so that's the call of Jesus. To lay everything down before him. To renounce anything that has any claim or ownership over our lives that is not Jesus. And to link arms with his family. To walk forward together. Sharing our vulnerabilities and our excesses. So that in this family there isn't a need that we can't meet together. Be it spiritual or emotional or physical. So that within this family we are all cared for so that we are a little taste of heaven as we gather here as Jesus' people. My hope, my prayer is that as we each enter into this community on this weekly basis, as we're gathering together, and more often as we gather in one another's homes and we spend time together, that every single time we leave, having tasted a bit of heaven, we leave with a better and clearer picture of what God's kingdom is all about. And that it's that vision of Jesus' kingdom come that drives us, that moves us, that motivates us to love and care for our neighbors outside of this place and to welcome them in with open arms here into the family of God. God, I pray that we would be motivated by a vision of your kingdom. That Jesus, you would release us to be generous with one another that you would give us a full trust in you, King Jesus, that allows us to lay down our stuff, to lay down the things that have control over us, and instead pursue you wholeheartedly, and to pursue one another as members of this family together. Jesus, I pray that our trust in you is so strong that we can be lavishly generous with one another and with our world, and trust you with the results. Jesus, I pray that your gospel, your good news is so strong that it would remind us that every single one of us is in an equal position before our good and holy God, and that we are brought near and we are made holy only by the work of Jesus. And then in being reminded of your good news, in being reminded of your gospel, and having that truth rooted firmly within us, We are moved to compassion and to love and to embrace and to share the good news of Jesus in all of our life. Jesus, be king over our lives. Holy Spirit, give us the wherewithal to lay down our idols and anything that we're worshiping that is not God the Father. Make us one in you, Jesus, just as you prayed in John 17. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.